Carl and I are passionate about mirroring as much of what the big resorts do as we possibly can. Our philosophy is that we can offer a lot of what they offer. Longer runs, bigger lifts, nicer lodges, very cold beer, really good food, and no traffic, no long lift lines, no expensive lift tickets, all of the good, none of the bad. And, and that's what we're trying to do. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester, back to Cali today because I just cannot get enough of West Coast skiing. First, I'm going to ask you for a favor. Please visit stormskiing.com and subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter. There, you will find an article that accompanies this and every Storm Skiing podcast that provides loads of additional context on our conversation, among many, many other things. Look, the podcast is just a small part of the storm. The heart of this whole operation is the Storm Skiing Newsletter, where I am breaking down the world of lift serve skiing with a minimum of 100 articles every single year. And you will get them all delivered straight to your inbox when you subscribe to the Storm Skiing Newsletter. Stop getting your ski news from Facebook. Get it from the Storm Ski Newsletter instead. You can also follow the storm on Twitter, Instagram, or this is new threads at Storm Ski Journal. Before we get to China Peak, a quick word from my sponsor, Profile Search International. Coming off a second consecutive season of record attendance, the ski industry has never been more competitive and neither has the war for the best talent. How will you ensure that your organization is positioned to compete with the best and deliver results to your customers and stakeholders? Profile Search International is the only executive search and recruitment firm in the world that is 100% focused on the ski industry. They have been placing hundreds of leaders in roles that truly drive results at the best and most progressive ski areas for more than 30 years. Profile Search International uses their intimate understanding of skiing and related industries and of the candidates worldwide to align talent with your needs and goals. With offices in the US and Canada, they find and negotiate with the right leaders for your team. Reach out to them directly at profilesearch.com or contact them by email or phone, or you can send me a note, skiing at substack.com, and I will forward it on to the amped up and ready to charge team at Profile Search International. That's profilesearch.com. Episode 134, Tim Cohey, President and General Manager of China Peak, California. 13 years ago, Tim Cohey left Kirkwood after 17 years leading the resort to purchase China Peak, or as it was known at the time, Sierra Summit. Cohey immediately changed the name back to China Peak. You'll find out why in our podcast. And that first winter, it snowed 55 feet. Cohey's tenure as a resort owner could not have started any better. And over the next decade, it could not have gone any worse. A succession of annual droughts nearly sank the ski area, which ran on a primitive snowmaking system 
that could not keep up with the mega resorts that Vail and Altera kept scooping up across California. So how did we get to the China peak of today, which runs a sophisticated brand new snowmaking system? The China peak, which is upgrading one chairlift this year and another next year, which is now under the ownership of the newly formed California Mountain Resort Company with Mountain High and Dodge Ridge. The China Peak, which just smashed its all-time snowfall record. That's the story we're going to hear today from one of skiing's living and working legends. Let's do it. My guest today is the president and general manager of China Peak, California. China Peak features 1,200 acres of terrain on a 1,679-foot vertical drop, served by 10 lifts, including a new used fixed grip quad that will replace the Canyon Double this summer. During the 2022-23 ski season, China Peak smashed its all-time single-season snowfall record with 701 inches. Last year, after a dozen years owning the resort, he sold China Peak to California Mountain Resort Company, a group that also owns California's Mountain High and Dodge Ridge ski areas. Prior to purchasing China Peak in 2010, he spent 17 years as CEO, President, Chief Operating Officer, Chief Marketing Officer, and General Manager of Kirkwood Mountain Resort in California. He has been a ski industry leader for more than 40 years, spending time at Heavenly, Sunday River, and Big Bear. Tim Cohey is my guest. Tim, welcome back to the storm. Always good to chop it up with you. How are you doing today? Well, thanks a lot, Stuart. Um, I, I'm a huge fan of the podcast. I listen to them all the time. A lot of my friends do as well, including my uh, former partner. So uh, I'm doing great. And uh, again, I appreciate being part of the, of the podcast. Well, thanks so much for saying that, Tim. I really appreciate that. Let's linger on this number for a moment. 701 inches this past season. I mean, that is just amazing. It's amazing even to see that stat in print. What was that like to be there on the ground and actually live 701 inches of snow? Well, Stuart, um, you know, it, it's, it's certainly on paper, it sounds fantastic. It's sort of like when somebody wins a, a golf tournament or a, like the PGA yesterday or the NBA finals or whatever, you see the victory, but you didn't see what went into, into the victory. <laughs> and I would say that, that most of us in California, you know, in the Sierra, uh, I think Mammoth probably set the biggest record. I think Mammoth's over 800 inches and still skiing top to bottom with fantastic snow. Um, and, and of course, all the, you know, the big resorts in Tahoe would say that, you know, overall, it was a great season. I think probably most people, including us, had record revenues, probably probably didn't make as probably a net income operating profit wasn't as high because when you have that kind of snow, especially the way it came, Stuart, it caused problems. And uh, that one stretch, our road was closed for nine days. And to put that in perspective, in the first 12 years that I owned and operated China Peak, we lost the road one day. So wow. we lost the road one day in 12 years. We lost it nine days in one year. And unbelievable. And so, and I, we're not the only one. I mean, Highway 88, Matt Jones would tell you at Kirkwood, John Rice would tell you over on Highway 50, the folks at Altera would tell you on Squaw and Alpine and, and North Star, Sugar Bowl over there. It, it, it was simply a, a punishing, it came so hard so fast during the one stretch. And then the second thing that really hurt us more than anybody is there was a fair amount of rain that everybody knew about. And, and unfortunately, after about 15 or 16 feet of snow, a couple of days of a break, and then what was what they called the, um, 
pineapple it wasn't the pineapple express it was the uh whatever they call i forget the name of now they used to, to atmospheric rivers atmospheric river came right at central california so it hit a little bit in the south it definitely hit some in the north but its major major thrust was right at one ski area in central california and that was us so oh, wow. we were flooded we got flooded out we lost the roads again we lost a building um mm. that, that that was a rough one so you know, even though we had a really good year, uh, had that had we not lost access to the resort, and others lost access too, we just happened to lose it far more. And uh, it would have been an unbelievable, spectacular year. It would, it would have been more representative of what you would think 700 inches does. But because it was such so brutal, you, you don't see the margins because, I mean, you're sitting there spending a fortune removing snow clearing out snow because when it rained like that hard, Stuart, there was no place for the water to go. So it just went straight up because it was like being inside of a house because you had 15 foot snow walls on all sides. So it was a battle. There were other parts of it that were difficult, but, but then April, which t- technically is not a very profitable year because everything kind of winds down was a very profitable month. So it really re- helped us recover what was uh, a really ugly scene in, in March. So overall, still a pretty positive year and, and an amazing year to be part of the ski industry in California. When you're cut off from your resort like that, Tim, are you just cut off and you can't do anything until Caltrans gets that road open? Or do you keep a team on site so that they can get to work digging out the resort? So when they do break that road open, you can just start skiing people up the mountain right away. Uh, Stuart, we're very lucky in one sense. Uh, in China Peak, lucky for a lot of things, but one of them is the fact that we house in our own housing about 120 people on site. So good news for us, they were there. Bad news for them, they couldn't go anywhere even if they wanted to. So they were sort of trapped at the resort. So that kept a really steady crew. Um, so our lifts were being dug out constantly. Our parking lots were being plowed constantly. The bridges and the walkways and the decks were all being kept up. So to answer your question, we were ready to go. The second that road opened, we were already turning lifts, you know, had runs groomed, uh, were able to, to stay up. So, so that is a big, big bonus to have staff on site for a number of reasons, but that's certainly one of them. So as I mentioned, you spent a long time leading Kirkwood Resort and 701 inches is huge for China Peak. Maybe not that unusual for Kirkwood. How did you tap into that experience running Kirkwood to help the team get through a record beating season like this? Oh, that, that was very helpful to be very frank. Uh, in 1997, uh, I think I had been at Kirkwood about four years. We had about a little over 900 inches with 76 feet of snow. I, I had seen just about everything I've seen, you know, Kirkwood is famous for road closures, both the Carson pass and the Carson spur. I'd become pretty good friends with Matt Jones, uh, who runs Kirkwood young guy, super talented guy, and we stay in touch a lot because my commute from my home in Nevada to China Peak goes right through Highway 88 about a little over 80 times a year. So Matt was very gracious about saying, hey, there looks like they may close it. You better get going or they're going to open it. You better get going. And so I talked to him a lot. And he had, you know, he had a cot, which we all did at Kirkwood. All of us had when we ran Kirkwood had a cot in the office. <laughs> and I, I think I think Matt would tell you. And his wife and his family would tell you, who live in South Lake Tahoe, that he spent as many nights at Kirkwood as he did at his home this last winter. So any of us, uh, mainly, you know, myself, him, Chip Siemens was there for a few years, uh, but, you know, nobody nearly as long as I was there would tell you that, you know, I was able to tell our guys at China Peak, look, this is difficult, but 
it's going to pass and we'll get and we'll get open again and all that. Remember, of course, in 2011, our, my first year at China Peak, and in 2017, we had over 500 inches. It wasn't 700, but we had over 500 inches. So it wasn't our first uh, rodeo with having a lot of snow. So that's 701 inches this year. That'd be your old record of 625 inches, which was in fact that 2010 to 11 season, which was your first season owning China Peak. And we'll get into the sale in a little bit here, but yeah. how appropriate was it for you, Tim, to bookend your ownership tenure with these two record-breaking seasons? Well, you know, the most interesting part about that, Stuart, is they were bookended by nine droughts. Right. So 2011, our first year, you know, I remember people telling me I must be the luckiest guy in America. You buy a ski resort and it snows 55 feet. And then, uh, and, but then they buckled up and watched us hit nine droughts in the next 11 years. So it, it, uh, in the 13 years, so the 12 years that we own the resort and the one year as the operator, we've had three really, really big snow years. We had one year that was average, one year in 2015 or 16, about 300 inches, uh, very normal season, and then nine droughts. So in the 13-year history of China Peak since I've been there, only one year would look like a normal year. The other 12 are nothing close to normal. You're sitting on two pretty good back-to-back winners, these last two. You know, you made the decision in December. Well, you probably made the decision before that, but you announced the sale of China Peak to Carl Kapuscinski and Envision Capital in December. Then you had this record-breaking season. Any seller's remorse here, Tim, as we sit looking back? Uh, no, no. Um, I'm sure we'll get into that in a second as far as some of the details, uh, which I'm, I can share most of those details. You know, as you mentioned earlier, I've been at this a long time. Most of my friends are retired now in the business. Uh, you know, John Rice still works. Uh, Carl is a little bit younger than John and I, but Carl obviously still works a lot. Everybody else you looked around the state of California, nobody else is even, uh, you know, uh, Tom Fortune has been around a while. Obviously, Tom's similar to us in terms of how long he's been in it. So, you know, it's 40 some years, 21 and 22 were both big years, COVID years. And, you know, the, it just happened to be a good timing. It happened to be someone I really like, which is Carl Kapazinski who's become a terrific partner. We're having a great time together. So yeah, we were not sellers. You know, you, you can imagine if you run a business or you have a sports franchise, which I think there's a lot in common in skiing. So I talk about that a lot. If you go through 10 years of brutality and all of a sudden you're a Western Conference final team and the next year you're in the, you're in the NBA finals, you don't really want to sell the franchise. However, you, know, you sort of want to enjoy the fruits of your labor. You have paid off all your debt. You have cash. You're putting in a new lift. All these things are happening, but once in a while, simply the, the stars line up and they were pretty uh, anxious and qualified buyers. And it, it was something that did not drag on. And uh, so I thought it was the right thing to do. And, you know, my partners, Ross Blackburn and Chris were not super excited to sell either, but that the price was right and the timing was right. How did you convince them that it was time to sell? You know, um, to be very frank about it, it simply was the price. You know, Ross uh, was uh, the majority owner of the resort. Obviously, I had a big chunk. Uh, Chris had a little bit less, but was super active in terms of, you know, speaking with me three or four or five times a year. You know, Ross is an extremely, extremely wealthy guy. 
uh, has a lot of passion for China Peak. So even though it was an incredible return for him based on his investment in 2012, that the money just doesn't, you know, he gets to a certain level and people are like 10 million, 15 million, 20 million, you know, it's not going to change my life. But at some point, you know, we had, it had been a tough time. And even though Ross was only an investor, he wasn't active in the management, but, you know, he had loaned the company a lot of money. I'm sure there were times when he wondered if he was ever going to get it back, you know, back in 2015, I'm sure it was like, I'm going to kiss several million dollars goodbye. And the fact that we were in the position we were in when we sold was nothing short of a miracle, frankly. And I think everybody kind of knows what happened. So, you know, it, it was the right timing. Plus, for, for me personally, Stuart, they were, they were very, very insistent about me staying with the program. And uh, because we knew, Carl knew, Carl had, that was his second resort. This was going to be number three for us. You know, I was offered an opportunity to reinvest along with Carl, with Envision who are fantastic people. So I think the whole thing, the way it worked out. And, you know, if I was 55 years old, uh, I would think differently. I probably would have said, no, I don't want to do that. You know, I don't, I don't need the money at the time. But at some point, you know, you say, look, I, I have a responsibility to my family. I have responsibility to my kids and grandkids to create some solid net worth that is tangible. And so that was the opportunity to do that. And that's why we did it. So you don't think that it was necessary to sell China Peak for the resort's survival? This was a business decision based upon a motivated buyer and the right timing. It wasn't because the mountain was in trouble or anything else. We were in the best shape we have ever been in, in the spring of 2023. We had retired 100% of our debt. We had built a $4 million snowmaking addition cash. We had uh, bought a new lift from Jackson Hole, as you mentioned. We bought Thunder that is being installed literally as we speak. So no, frankly, the discussions I had with Carl lingered on for a year, Stuart. Mm -hmm. Carl first contacted me in 2022 you know, laying out the strategy of Central California and Southern California, having all the closest ski areas in the state, you know, selling a pass that we hadn't sold before. I said, Carl, man, we just, we just went through a decade of literally surviving. And here we are now cash in the bank. We don't even have a seasonal line. We literally were a cash business with brand new facilities, not all, some, some, yeah, I mean, to answer your question, I mean, that, that's why Carl was so interested. That's why Envision was interested in backing it financially because it was a turnkey operation. It, wasn't, it was not one of these resorts where you're losing money and you've got massive deferred maintenance and you're going to have to go in and spend millions to get it going again, which Carl and I are very familiar with right now on an acquisition we're trying to make right now. So I finally said, Carl, this is, you know, this is the kind of price we're looking at. He talked to his partners at Envision. They said, we're good with that. Let's go and close the deal in probably record time. Those attributes that you just broke down, Tim, of a profitable business with no deferred maintenance that is in good running order, that pretty much describes the sort of resort that Vail Resorts likes to buy or Altera. Did you have interest from any of the larger ski companies? Was Carl the only one sniffing around or did he have a little competition? No, um, because we weren't for sale, China Peak was never on the market, was never publicly on the market. The, the only exposure was Carl and only because it made sense more for him than anybody else. I'm sure probably when, if the word got out, maybe, I, I don't think it was an Altera or, or, or kind of thing, you know, maybe, maybe a James Coleman, who's become a good friend, uh, maybe a Stephen Kircher, you know, John Cummings seems to be more, you know, uh, you know maybe selling assets as opposed to buying assets based on the Lee Canyon sale. So, you know, I'm sure James was perhaps interested, but, you know, the, the concept of multiple resorts is obviously not new. 
uh, you know, Les Otten started it 30 years ago almost. So th- that concept wasn't lost on anybody that China Peak is a single site, probably, you know, simply a buying a, a cash flowing asset, which is fine. But from a strategic standpoint, it made way more sense to join forces mainly with Dodge Ridge and then whatever else we can make happen here in the next, you know, short period of time. So Tim, obviously you have a lot of respect for Carl. I don't think you would have handed your baby over to him at any price if you didn't, but let's just talk about that relationship a little bit. Obviously you've been in the ski industry for decades. So has Carl. Just talk about that relationship that the two of you have forged, how you first met, how you've worked together over the years, and ultimately why you thought he was the right next owner for China Peak. You know, um, I never knew Carl really well until about a year ago. Mm. Brad Wilson worked for him for many years. Brad is one of my closest friends. Brad came to work for us at Heavenly in 1986 and is, of course, you know, absolutely killing it at uh, Bogus Basin. I mean, just unbelievably successful. And uh, so I knew Carl because of Brad. I knew Carl because of Terry Tognazzini. But I didn't know him well. And, you know, Carl and I, as, a, as personalities, probably don't have a lot in common. I think Carl would tell you that. We've come from two. Carl grew up at a ski area. I mean, literally was damn near born at a ski area, a very, very small ski area in Vermont. He's got an incredibly interesting story about his background and all that. Carl was an operator in his 20s of a wow. very small ski area, but he was a, literally an operator in his 20s. He was He was probably illegally working at his local <laughs> ski area of Vermont, and he was 12, and his mother worked at the ski area. So Carl's got an incredibly interesting background, and Carl is a very, very, very smart guy. He's very savvy. What he's done at Mount High to to sort of you know survive the Altera dominance over there with no summit of Bear Mountain is, is frankly remarkable. He sort of re-engineered what Mountain High is and what Brightwood is to the market and more of a snow experience, not just a ski and snowboard experience. Unbelievably smart, in my opinion. So when the conversation started about China Peak is when I really got to know him. And um, he, he's just the entrepreneur's entrepreneur. He, he just gets it. He, he and I, from a business standpoint, we don't have a ton in common in terms of our backgrounds. Carl was a mountain guy uh, and I was a marketing guy. Of course, that goes back, you know, 30 years now, but we, we just, we hit it off. He, he's an incredibly nice human being. We, we do have one thing in common. We both have incredibly attractive wives and, uh, uh, and we're very grateful for that. Carl's wife, Audrey, is an absolute stunner and also can ski. I mean, and she skis fast. She blows Carl away when it comes to speed. And he's not shy about telling people about that, but she's a hell of a good skier. She's a great sport. Uh, she pretty much travels everywhere with Carl. And uh, we just have become really, really, really good friends. We talk probably five days a week, especially when we're in this acquisition mode like we are right now. And uh, we just bought a uh, buying another chairlift right now. So that was a fun weekend to get that done. So it's two people that are just not not all huge backgrounds similar. He's from the East. I'm from the West, but have become really, really good friends. And uh, I'm really happy that this happened. I'm happy that Carl and Envision said, look, we're really not interested in doing this China Peak deal unless you want to stay part of the deal and help us with these other resorts. Both of us are intimately involved with all three of the properties we have so far. So talk a little bit about that aspect of it, Tim, because you and Carl both told me the same thing in December when this purchase was going through, was that you complement each other really well. 
And it sounded like you, your hope was that Carl could enhance some of the operations and, and put some capital into the thing. While you worked on that lifestyle entertainment sort of off-slope piece at all three resorts. So talk about that dynamic, how that's worked out so far, and really what you're hoping to achieve on both sides of that. Well, it's gone exactly as we had predicted. And uh, we've brought in capital. Um, we have built the Cali Pass uh, was a huge success this spring. Overall sales at China Peak and Dodge Ridge were up about almost 40% spring pass Unreal. sale, which was almost exclusively tied to the Cali Pass. Uh, Mountain High was up, I think, 10 or 15% because Mountain High customer doesn't understand yet about the High Sierra. So we're going to have a, one of our big pushes this year with another fantastic marketer, John McCauley, down at Mountain High, known John for 25 years, a Brad Wilson disciple. It will, will be really helping market High Sierra skiing at at Dodge Ridge and China Peak, at least maybe a few more with that Cali Pass. I'll tell you the main thing about Carl, the reason we get along so well, he's just a very nice human being. He's, he's, he's courteous. He's polite. He's respectful. He doesn't get in the weeds. He's, he's, he's really, you want to talk about somebody who, you know, if, if you look up the phrase water off a duck's back, in a thesaurus, you're going to see a picture of Carl Kapuscinski. <laughs> he, he is, he, because there have been plenty of times this year, Stuart, where, where Carl could have said, you know, wow, this is a mess. I mean, these, yeah. <laughs> this rain and this snow and the road closures. He had road closures, a mountain high picture. He had, he had his camera running, showing out the front window of his car, driving a mountain high on pavement, on dry pavement, and his road below him was closed because of what was happening on Route 15, getting to, uh, and, and the reallocation of Caltrans resources. So if there's a trait that Carl Kapuscinski has that I wish I had, it's the fact that he's an optimist. And my wife would say, I am the ultimate pessimist. I think I'm a realist. And I think I borderline in the middle, like a lot of people. I think I just see things as they are. I'm not, I don't, I'm not a woe is me guy, but I'm not, I'm not Carl. Carl is like, let's do it. Let's get through it. Let's do it. Let's go it. And We'll find the money some way or we'll find the people some way. The roads will get open and we'll figure this out. So he has been, you know, I mean, he can't teach the old dog new tricks, but I can tell you that he's had a really positive influence on me being, you know, less of a realist and more of an optimist. And that's probably, I think, his biggest trait. He's just a very positive guy. You know, I want to ask you about that specifically, Tim, which is this sort of power dynamic that can sometimes get in the way of things. So you're the top guy. You've been the top guy for a long time at a lot of different resorts. You own your own resort. You're the guy in charge. And you have Carl, another very experienced operator, another person who's going to have opinions, comes in and, and you know, it takes some humility to not, on paper at least, be the top guy anymore. And I was going to ask you how you handle that dynamic. It sounds like you just answered it and said that you just work really well together and that there's no power struggle there, but in your own words, how has that worked out? Is that something that concerned you and, and has it, has it gone? It sounds like it's gone great so far. You know, it, it could not be better. I mean, as I said, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a cheerleader by nature. I'm not a overly nice guy. I don't think by nature, um, I have no reason to, to state things uh, other than exactly as they are. And our, our relationship is a 10. I mean, it's literally a 10. The, the company is called California Mount Resort Company. Carl is the CEO of that company, and I'm the president of that company. Um, you would never know that. When I, when I introduce Carl, I introduce him as my partner. When Carl introduces me, he introduces me as, my part, as his partner. When Envision talks about Carl and I, 
we have two partners in California at our resorts, Carl Kapuscinski and Tim Kohe. And there's certain things that, that I do really, really, really well. And Carl says, no one needs to do that but you. You just do that. As I happen to have a big writing background, so it's helped a lot in some of these letters of offers and things like that. And uh, Carl just has a lot of experience on the mountainside. And partnerships, my dad was a big CPA for over 60 years of his life, had a partner for about 45 of those years. And how they survived, I don't know. But I remember him telling me years and years ago, you know, partnerships are pretty much like marriages. You know, you got to maybe a 50-50 shot. And uh, the only thing that I would do differently, I wish I was partners with Carl 10 years ago. I wish wish, um, Carl just turned 60. I'm going to be 68 in a few months. I wish we could roll the tape back 10 years because I bet we, I bet between the two of us and and a company like Envision willing to fund us and, and our ability to, to, to really see how this should roll. I'll bet we'd have 10 ski areas today Mm. instead of having three, maybe four, maybe five we'd have probably 10 and we'd be doing this for 15, 20 years rather than, you know, five or 10 years. I wish I had known him much earlier because he would have been a fantastic partner back, you know, to start to do what, what Altera's done and what, what Vale's done, what Stephen Kircher's done, what James Coleman has really done. And uh, Carl and I, I think we could have done that too. And, and that's my only regret. We're still going to be, we're still going to try to do it, but I wish we would have had another 10 years to run at it. I mean, the energy you're bringing to this thing, Tim, you don't sound 68. And I think that a lot of listeners will be surprised to hear that. You know, I had Doug Fish on the podcast, as I do every year, a couple months ago. And we talked about how Doug really was able to build this thing, the Indie Pass, from scratch in his 60s. And and what his mindset was and the way that you orient yourself as you get into these older phases of your career, and that there's a certain mindset you need to say, okay, the best is still ahead of me. It sounds like you still have no intention of slowing down. You could have cashed out. You could be on a golf course right now. You could be you know, skiing in South America. You decided to stay on. At age 68, Tim, what still motivates you? How do you keep that energy up to, to just keep going, even in your 60s when a lot of people are starting to think about, okay, I'm, I'm done? Um. You know, I think there's a lot of luck in that, Stuart. There's a ton of luck. Um, number one, I was born into the right gene pool. My dad uh, passed away uh, six and a half years ago. He was 94 years old. 72 hours before he passed away, he was still reviewing two or $300 million of trusts that he managed because that's what happens when you're an old and your CPA is everyone's passed away and you're managing money for their spouse or for their kids. And 72 hours later, he stopped breathing. So my dad worked his whole life. And, you know, if I got, you know, we got super lucky, myself and all my sons are, I got in the lucky athletic gene pool. We got a little bit of intellect that helped. We all got lucky athletically. And, you know, this would be my 40th year racing triathlon, um, been that that long time. So physically fit, mentally, you know, no problems yet. Uh, A family culture of working and having five sons and now four grandkids. And I tell you, it's my wife is super fit. We go all the time. We, if you saw our garage, you'd say, there's two of you in the house. There's 14 bikes. I don't quite get that. <laughs> you know, there's a the big Harley in there. There's a sports car. There's mountain bikes. There's all this kind of fun and, and staying active and all that. And also, I would say, Stuart, the fact that this has worked out so well with Carl, there's been zero ego about anything. So to your comment, 
you, you go from being an owner. And, and I did think about that. I think everybody does. Everybody who sells a business and agrees to continue to manage the business goes through that, that thought process of saying, wow, you know, A, I'm not 40. B, I don't own this anymore. And so therefore, I can't just do whatever I feel like doing whenever I want. But I'll tell you what, between our relationship and Envision, the way the resort operates, the way the resort gets capitalized, the way we hire, the way we promote, the way we spend money has not changed 1%. So to be very frank about it, we continue to operate as if we are the operators and we're given that license by our colleagues at Envision who you know, there's no better investment company in the country in the ski business than Envision Capital. I, I just can't say enough about those guys. You know, we deal with Andy Munger and Bert Castillo, who's the principal. And dating back to the second we started negotiating the purchase of China Peak, which was in September of 2022, these guys have been princes and we're, we're so excited to be part of all of it. So I guess the answer to the question, the point is, you know, physically, mentally fit, in a great situation with a great company, we had we had over twenty some million dollars in cash when we ended the season between the through ski areas. We're continuing to build. We're trying to buy more resorts, which is super exciting. I wish we had more success right now, but we're trying to get more resorts. So it's a really exciting time. And again, I'm I'm 68 this year. I am 26 years away, almost 27 years away from when my father quit working. So you have. A lot going for you. You've got a great situation. You've got great health. You've got a great mental state. What is the potential here, Tim? What can you build if given enough time and if things go your way? I think um, it's funny. I was just talking to Carl before we jumped on this call today. There's really, at this point, we've got one resort that we, we thought we had the deal, but some of the numbers came back and they weren't what was represented. So we had to retool that and, and that one sort of has fallen out. We hope it still happens, but that one is, is on ice right now, which is kind of a bummer because we were, we were already pretty far down the road on that one. There's a couple of them in the Tahoe region that we have our eye on. There's one, a destination resort that we're talking about right now. You know, regardless of how much steam I have, regardless of how much energy I have at some point, do I think that Carl and I are going to operate, you know, 20 ski resorts? No. Do I think it's possible that we have five or six? Absolutely. And uh, we have some really talented young people. He's got some really talented people at Dodge Ridge. You know, one of my sons just got promoted to a major role at China Peak, which I'm super happy about. He's got some young talent down at uh, Mountain High. The resort that we're trying to purchase has a ready management team in place. So frankly, it's a lot of fun. Um, it's exciting. China Peak had a successful year. Dodge Ridge had an unbelievable year. Absolutely unbelievable. So we're in a great situation. I don't know how it could be any better than it is right now, especially if we can get this other deal closed. It'll be very exciting for us. But right now, things are going about as well as they can go. So I imagine you can't give me any names, Tim. However, what are the attributes that you're looking for in potential acquisitions? Are you looking exclusively West Coast? Are you looking for stuff near cities? Are you looking for a certain size of mountain? What is it that, what are the parameters of a ski area that you would consider adding to the company? You know, Stuart, the, the big thing is making this pass work. And, um, you know, even though there's three ski areas, the, the Cali Pass was really directed at Dodge Ridge and China Peak. So we know. If we can add another resort, that will probably increase the business by 50%. And then we can add another one in California or two in California. So, so strategically, it's much more of an icon epic approach than it is yeah. uh, Mountain Capital Partners 
or a uh, Powder Corp or a uh, Boeing Resorts. You know, if you look at those resorts, which I know you know better than I, because uh, you talk to these guys all the time with this with these terrific podcasts. You know, they're they're not necessarily buying for a past product. They're buying for resorts that can be built and make money and and be profitable and all that. And they've done a fantastic. You know, Stephen Kirch is a very good friend. As I said, James Coleman and I had dinner last Saturday night. Super fun guy. Super energetic wife. And then you know, I, I, John Cummings' wife grew up at China Peak. Christy Churchill Cummings. So. Our thing is right now a little more strategic in terms of the, you know, make the pass work. So it's the micro version of a Vail or an Altera pass. The destination ski areas that we look at, you know, probably partly because it looks good in the Envision portfolio. In some cases, they probably would add value to what's now known as the Cali Pass. Those are probably more, you know, I, wouldn't, I don't want to call them trophies because Envision is a private equity firm that needs to, you know, have a return, which they are very successful, but they need to show return. They can't just buy assets because they look great. For the destination ski areas, if we have one or two destination areas, will Cali Pass skiers, right now we have about 30,000 pass holders, Will they want to go to our destinations? Of course they will. But that is not nearly as strategically key as adding resorts that add value to that season pass, just exactly like Vail and like Icon and Epic has done so successfully. Do you think there's potential, Tim, to evolve the Cali Pass and maybe merge it with Powder Alliance so that the Cali Pass becomes a season pass at certain ski areas, China Peak, Dodge Ridge, Mountain High, and then offers a certain amount of days at these partner resorts like Loveland and Bogus Basin and Lost Trail, Montana, but that becomes less of a reciprocal free arrangement than uh, hey, they get a redemption each time arrangement. And that sort of acts as an incentive for everyone to get more involved and, and perhaps up their access. Is there any potential or discussions around anything like that? Stuart, I don't know how you know what you know. You, you always blow me away when I listen to the podcast, not only are you unbelievably well-rehearsed, but you're, I guess the term is clairvoyant. Yeah, we're looking at that. Okay. Yeah, we're looking at that. Um, That's exciting. I think, by the way, you mentioned Doug Fish. I, I just think he is a super cool guy. He came out and skied with me at China Peak, I think it was a year or two ago. Good skier, solid skier. And just, a, you know, for somebody who has come out of the marketing business their entire lives, you appreciate guys like that. A, he's a brilliant marketing strategist. B, he's an entrepreneur. I just think Doug Fish is um, a really sharp guy. But yeah, I think at a minimum, Stuart, we are going to play up the value of the powder lines more than we have before. Because before, we didn't have any pass. We just had individual passes. We were simply one of X amount of resorts, 17, 18, 19, whatever we're at right now at powder lines. We didn't have like this pass. Well, now we have a pass that from a brand standpoint is focused on multiple resort visitation. We didn't have that before. Now we do. So suddenly, even though it's only three days at Powder Alliance Resorts, suddenly the concept, it, it gives us a reason to market the concept of it, which stage one is the Cali Pass. The next stage, of course, is the Powder Alliance. And then the next stage is either do something more aggressive, as you just suggested with the Powder Alliance, or pick off a few other resorts like Altera's done, which I, when I saw that happen X years ago, I said, before it happened, probably much like you and a few other marketing types probably said, somebody's going to figure out that you don't necessarily have to own all these ski areas. Somebody's going to figure out that marketing agreements, because Sun Valley's not a seller today. Big Sky's not a seller today. Taos, New Mexico's not a seller today. Jackson Hole's not a seller today. These are super, super high net worth owners in most cases. So therefore, 
they don't want to necessarily want to sell, but they see the value in the pass. I suspect that there's probably some more people out there like that, that we could look at taking the powder alliance concept, which is three for three trading across non-peak days with no compensation to adding more value to some of the really marquee powder alliance skier is that when you look at the visitation, you can see where people really want to go. And it's, you know, all these resorts are terrific resorts. Four or five are getting most of the visitation from California. And those are the ones you probably look at. Is there a world, Tim, where this alliance, whatever form it takes, expands out of the West? Because following this template, there's just tons of resorts in the Midwest, in the East that could work here. I keep waiting for Coleman to do the same thing with MCP. And I know he jumped down and bought that Valley Nevado down in Chile recently, but Right now, he's mostly focused in the West, and I keep waiting for one or the other of you to make a move outside. I know Carl has some experience in the Midwest. You both have experience in the East. Is that something you've thought about, or are you just focused on the West and making this thing work in the West? Well, this is the one question that you've asked that I would say it's possible that Carl and I would not have the same answer. Mm. Um, I would tell you that I don't think that's likely. It's not, it's not likely for me because the strength of what we do right now is that we literally run through a corridor here. You go from mountain high, you can easily drive from mountain high to China Peak. You take another little hop over to Dodge Ridge. And then from there, I drive right by some of these ski areas that we're looking at from my house in Nevada. So from my perspective, what makes this work is the pass. The issue is, to be very, very frank about it, between Altera and Vail, They've pretty much swept the deck on the resorts where people travel. So I don't even know, maybe there's one or two. I'm sure there's one or two. But if you look at the Midwest and the East, I would be willing to bet that 90% of the people that live in the East, let's call it mostly people visiting New York, Maine, uh, Massachusetts, and New Hampshire ski areas, that I would bet that the vast, vast majority of those people who you look at their credit card that shows they took a vacation are vacationing at an Altera or Vail Resorts. So I think if we ended up going to the Midwest or East, it would be so because the purchase makes sense, not because the past makes sense. You know, Tim, you've been at this so long and you've seen so much and you've worked with so many of the players that helped shape modern skiing that... I really want to get your take on this, especially being on the front lines now as part of one of these small conglomerates. You know, as you just mentioned, the big players have bought most of the large destination resorts, your steamboats, your big skies and your Vail Mountain and Mammoth. So that leaves a lot of ski areas the size of China Peak and Mountain High and Dodge Ridge and Sierra Tahoe, which I realize that one's a little bigger. But just your own opinion, Tim, what do you think the role is? of these smaller conglomerates fusing these mid-sized resorts together as a kind of alternative to Epic and Icon, because they seem to be healthy. They seem to be doing fine. They seem to be making moves. What do you think their role is in 21st century skiing as this thing continues to evolve? Well, I think the best news for everybody, and I think you and I might've talked about this a year ago, you know, because of my role at the college, which ends this month after 20 years, I think the fear everybody had about what was going to happen with Epic and then later on with Icon never developed. In fact, the opposite happened. And I'm not really sure if this is the right comparison, but it's almost like the laptop computer and the cell phone. And somebody came out with it and then they said, you know, that is really cool. I have to have one. 
and everybody bought one. At the end of the day, clearly you have market leaders, Apple, others, but then a lot of other people jumped in the game. And the fact is everybody has one. And so, as I've said now for several years, the greatest contribution that Vail made to the United States ski industry is they brought a new product to the market that's been around for a long, long time, but was not what it is today. And they've taken a product that basically is the same price or in some cases even less than it was 25 years ago and have made this product so incredible that it has risen the table in the entire industry at a pretty important time when the market was has been, frankly, for almost four decades from a participation standpoint, not from a volume standpoint, but from a numbers game, how many people are out there doing this has been pretty flat for basically four decades. So NSAA reported 64, 65 million visits, but, but that is not based on numbers of people. That's based on actual attendance, which is great. And so what, what never happened was a cannibalization or a shift of people leaving one skier to the next. I don't know this for a fact, but I would be willing to bet that the number of people, if you, if you look at how many season passes are in, out in the United States today that are part of a multi-resort pass, let's say it's a couple of million, maybe it's 3 million, maybe it's whatever it is. I would be willing to bet that if you looked at the people that own those passes and you looked at how many people do not ski or ride at the same resort that they had a pass at before Epic or Icon, before Cali Pass, before all of that is incredibly small. That the fact of the matter is that they just came out with a great product that allowed people at Kirkwood or Palisades to basically say, I'm always going to be here. It's my home place. If you want to add more resorts, that would be great. But the number of people that left that actually said, I'm leaving to go somewhere else. The only person that I have ever heard sell their ski area for fear of losing business to Icon or to Epic was Win Smith. Mm-hmm. He was the only person, in fact, I think I heard it on your podcast. He's the only person that I've heard say, I just felt like I was surrounded. And I remember him saying that at a National Ski Area's Board of Directors meeting. And it was the first time somebody said, I'm crying uncle. And maybe, maybe that's not exactly what he said, but very smart guy. Obviously, he was chair of the NSAA, I think, about the time this happened, talking about his retirement and basically said, I'm surrounded. And at that time, Sugarbush, I think, was if you look at the top 10 ski areas in the East, it might have been the only one not part of Boyne, Powder, Epic, or Icon. And so... I just don't think that that's happened very often. And I think it's a tribute to the fact that they've done such a fantastic job of making a season pass a product that now millions and millions of people know about. And, you know, back in the day, you remember, are you a season pass holder? Oh, no, no, no. I only ski like six or seven days a year. You need to ski like 50 days a year to be a season pass holder. They changed that. For that, I give them huge credit. So as you look to the future and you have these smaller conglomerates like yours, that have these season passes. If skiers aren't migrating between areas, then what was the advantage of you joining together with Mountain High and Dodge Ridge? Because they're geographically reachable. So if you look at Mountain High is located, if you look at where China Peaks located, and you look where Dodge Ridge is located, we have the three closest ski areas to probably 70% of the population in the state of California. And if we were successful at getting the fourth ski area, we would be probably over 80%. That if you live anywhere between San Diego, through Orange County, L.A. County, through San Fernando Valley, 
up into the Central Valley, Bakersfield, Fresno, Madera, Stockton, Sacramento, Chico, and then all the way along the coast, Santa Barbara, all the cities, all the beach cities, through San Luis Obispo, Monterey, Santa Cruz, the beaches of San Jose, all the way to San Francisco, I would be willing to bet on a map. In fact, I don't even need to bet. I've already done it. Approximately 80% of California's population are three ski areas, and this fourth ski area would be the closest to 40 million people in the state of California. So the reason that the Dodge Ridge in China Peak Pass works so well is because if you live in the Central Valley or you live in the Central Coast, or if you're in the South Bay, you can get to those ski areas faster than anything else. And, and also they're very different. They're very different ski areas. China Peak, they're both the same vertical. They're both the same size. China Peak is more like a version of Kirkwood, has some pretty good steeps. We groom a lot of really steep stuff. Dodge Ridge has more length. Dodge Ridge is more of a heavenly or North Star. China Peak is more of a Alpine Meadows, you know, uh, sugar bowl kind of thing. Front side of Kirkwood, not the back side. That's too big of an acreage disparity. But the skier is, if you talk to people who go to both, and a ton of people are going to both at that pass, they like, I like going to both because of different things. For me personally, my favorite ski area is Mammoth. My second favorite ski area in California is North Star because they're very, very different ski areas because one of them is steep and, you know, super, super challenging. The other one has the best long intermediate terrain in California, and that's North Star on the backside. It's the best. And so I think that Dodge Ridge and China Peak offer very different, and, and I keep referring to the other skier you're trying to get. That is also very, very, very different, which is why it would be very helpful as well. So one more question about the sale here, Tim, and then we'll move on and talk about the mountain. You know, you told me in December, quote, not everyone could have survived, end quote, that 12 years that you own China Peak, given all the droughts you've talked about. How did you survive? Uh, my partner funded the ski area. Hmm. And uh, that's, there's really no way to sugarcoat it. Um, Ross, when we got in trouble with Wells Fargo Bank in about 2012, we knew at that point that we were not going to be very bankable. So Ross continued to feed it. And it was never, it never got to be a ridiculously huge number, but it was, it was definitely, in, it was more than 1 million and it was less than 10. You know, to him wasn't a huge number, but one thing you learn about really, really wealthy people, they didn't get that way by being stupid and they didn't get that way by making bad investments. So Ross had a sort of a level that he felt comfortable saying, look, if this goes bad, this is the number I'm okay with. And it got to that point in 2015. And um, the other thing that happened, Stuart, to be very frank about it, was COVID. COVID turned everybody to go local and you couldn't go to a hotel room. You couldn't go in many of the day lodges at the big resorts because they were super, super strict about COVID. You could not get on an airplane. You could not rent a car. And so you had two things working for you. Number one, everyone's like, well, the hell with it. I'm going to go local. And number two, you had Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, who said, look, I don't know what to tell you, but I would just go skiing. Okay. <laughs> and, and even though a lot of us are not a huge fan of Gavin Newsom, that definitely did not hurt because, you know, he's a very big skier. They own property at, right. at, at Palisades. And, and so what happened in 2021, what happened in 2022, and then carried over to this year was the momentum that happened with COVID. And that really had a big impact on us being able to retire all that debt. And, uh, you know, the other thing, I guess, on a more of a personal note is I just had a real survival mentality. Carl has a very similar story. If you happen to have an interview with Carl, which I would recommend, he's a fabulous interview. Ask Carl the same thing. Carl, I said, you know, you're in this great position now. You sold Stevens Creek to Avail. He made a boatload of money there. He's got a huge piece of equity in Mountain High. He's got equity with me 
at Dodge Ridge and, and China Peak. He'll have equity in any new deals with me. But Carl was up against it too. Carl had a time in his life when it was like lights out and he got bailed out and the rest is history. But it's a great story. What do you think motivated Ross? You know, if obviously he wasn't about to make any bad decisions or decisions that would impact him financially, but is he just have a love for China Peak or for skiing? Did he just really believe in the team? I understand you can't necessarily speak for him, but did you have a sense from working with him of what his motivation was to keep China Peak afloat? I would say it was three things. One, a real love for the resort. He grew up there. His family was there. He was on the ski team there. They were weekenders at China Peak. So number one, uh, where he spent a lot of time and has fantastic memory. He has some really great stories about China Peak when he was a kid. Number two was our partner, Chris Hecker. Chris Hecker kept Ross in the game. I would be willing to say that had it not been for Chris Hecker, and he and Ross are super, super tight, that if Chris Hecker hadn't said, Ross, we just got to hang in here one more year, we got to hang in here one more year, Ross would have bailed. And I don't know if Ross would admit that or agree with that, I should say, but I can tell you Chris Hecker kept Ross from jumping off the cliff. And the third thing was Ross is a very, very, very big deal in the Central Valley. He is the largest independent almond packager on this planet. And everybody in the world knows Ross Blackburn. And I don't think Ross Blackburn wanted to roam around Fresno in his extremely expensive vehicles and have people say, there goes Ross Blackburn. He allowed China Peak to go bankrupt. So that, that was really it. You know, our relationship at the end wasn't very good, which was a real bummer. Uh, it had nothing to do with running the resort or, or anything else. Our personalities never got along really, really well. And, the, and it kind of, I think the frustration for him boiled over in about 2021 or so. From 2021 to the time we sold, I basically communicated with, uh, with Chris Hecker. And then Chris communicated to Ross. And look, I'm really unhappy that that happened. But, you know, that's what Ross wanted to do. And that's what we did. And at the end of the day, I, I don't want to give an exact number, but Ross's return on his investment in China Peak was more than I would say most people have ever made on their original investment at the ski area. It worked out in the end and he got a good return and you're in a good situation. And look, I appreciate that you had this survivor's mentality, but people can waste any amount of money that you can give them, right? So it was no guarantee that just because you had this benefactor that the ski area was going to succeed. So how did you keep it going specifically? I mean, what were the things that you did to, because it was just drought after drought after drought to make sure that the place didn't go bust and that you took that investment and used it wisely and used it to prop the thing up long enough until the snow came. So Stuart, 2015 was the fourth consecutive drought. Uh, that was the showdown with Wells Fargo Bank that I think we talked about last time we, you and I talked, which was turned out to be a brilliant move. I mean, it's just something that I I sort of stumbled on, as I recall telling you, and and uh, that I, how I understood how banks operated and all that and, and how they treated loans. So we got out of that mess in 2015. And then 2016, it snowed uh, and, and we got back on our feet. And that time, my long, long, long time friend, in my opinion, the smartest guy ever in the American ski industry, Bill Killebrew, sat down with Ross and myself and Chris Hecker and said, you know, I know you don't want to do it, but you got to put in a real snowmaking system. You can't get by here with what you're doing, 1,000 GPM. That's why you, 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 know, you, can't, you can't get it open fast enough. You can't get enough runs open by Christmas. You know, Bill Killerbrew, of course, is one of the great snowmaking geniuses of all time, you know, putting snowmaking in Heavenly, 3,500 vertical feet of snowmaking in Heavenly before most skiers in Tahoe could spell snowmaking. 
and including the biggest ones, including the biggest ones in the state of California, other than Snow Summit. And Bill said, you know, I'll help you design it. Jay Collins was a huge help. So we spent $4 million of cash, Ross's cash, and built that system and then got lucky with some weather, got lucky with some stomaching temps, uh, some really difficult times for my son, Troy, getting that system running. It was really challenging, still is today, just a challenging system with three pump houses and et cetera, et cetera. And, some, and then of sort we hit these good snow years and uh, we're able to pay Ross back miraculously in a short period of time. So how big of a difference has that snowmaking system made to early season operations? And again, I appreciate you said two great back-to-back snow years, but just how much has that changed China Peak's trajectory? You know, it's funny, we haven't had a snowmaking year yet. So, uh, you know, the first couple of years, the system, you know, it snowed and I'm just recalling now <laughs> what's happened these last four or five years with it. And we're going to make another big improvement this year in terms of how we draw water and things like that. But I'm not a, um, what do you call somebody who uh, believes in fate? Uh, I, I'm not that guy. I'm, I'm not the person who's like, I'm, I'm going to go and wash my car because I know it's going to rain. I'm not that guy. But since that snowmaking system has been built, we've had good seasons. And, you know, our biggest challenge last two years is avoid having everything get damaged because it got buried. So we lost most of our snowmaking pipeline. It's aluminum. We lost most of it this year because of the snow. We just never thought something like that could happen, that we literally would lose an 11-inch aluminum pipe because it got crushed by snow. So, you know, we, every year we're all ready to go, and we have up to about 4,000 gallons a minute, and Troy knows how to run the system, and he's got a great crew. We have, un, we have in essence, unlimited water uh, that all flows back into the same place it came from, and we're all ready to go. We've got this great system. And I keep telling everybody, we're going to use it this year. You don't come off at 700 inches and get another 500 inches next year. It doesn't happen that way. So I said, I think we're going to use it this year. But if nothing else, psychologically, Stuart, it's a real big deal. Because we sit there and my son Troy and his gang knows we get to the last week in October, let's get ready to go. Let's flow water. Let's make sure the reservoirs are full. Let's make sure the team is ready. Let's make sure all the guns are tested. And if they hit November 1, we're making snow and we can make a lot of it very, very fast. So it's, if nothing else, it's a total mindset changer in terms of, you know, do we sit here now like we used to and go, if it doesn't snow, we're out of business next year. Now we look and say, if it doesn't snow, that would not be good, but we know we'll have probably every major lift open by Christmas day with this system. So lots of upgrades happening at China Peak. As you mentioned earlier, Tim, you are upgrading chair six, the Canyon lift with the fixed grip quad, the thunder quad from Jackson Hole. That's a really nice lift. It's not that old, installed in 1994 at Jackson Hole. Talk about why it was time to upgrade Canyon and how you hope that this new lift will change the experience of skiing at China Peak. Well, that lift is the first thing you see when you get across the bridge to the ski area. And we are doing well enough to where we need to make those changes. You know, we're not out there building $10 million detachables yet, although we are starting to think about it for the first time ever. And because we happen to have a fantastic location, probably probably one of the most significant detachable installations in the state of California ever would be made at China Peak because of the way it lays out. If you, I know you know the map really, really well. If you look at it, you could have one lift. The chair one at China Peak covers almost 80% of the ski terrain at that ski area 
just happens to be the way lay, most skiers don't lay out that way. It happens to be the way it lays out. So Carl is even more rabid about it than I am is saying, look, you know, name all the lifts. Obviously, base to base was a huge, huge thing over at uh, Palisades, both sides. But if you talk about name a lift that could have more impact than any one lift in the entire state of California, there's no question top five is going to be chair one at China Peak. So we're talking about it. That, by the way, Stuart, that is one advantage that I really hadn't mentioned that everybody knows about with these consolidations. And suddenly, instead of having a $3 million EBITDA, you've got a $15 million EBITDA. And suddenly the conversations are, look, you know, exactly like what happened to base to base. Altera obviously put most of its muscle in that season, last year's capital, into base to base. And now they're going to want to do something else. In our case now, rather than saying, well, China Peak's going to do what China Peak does, Dodge is going to do what Dodge does, Mount High is what Mount High does. Now, we, Carl and I get together, we look at total EBITDA, total cash flow, and we look total capital and go, all right, let's prioritize who's what's most important right now. So a, a eight or $9 million detachable six pack, which would never happen at China Peak on its own, is now suddenly a reality. Because that means Dodge Ridge gets canned a bunch of paintbrushes and some paving material and Dodge and Mountain High gets to, you know, a couple of new coolers, but that's how it can work now, which is really a big advantage. So I, I'm sorry, I, I got off track. So I wanted to make sure I made that point. I forgot what you had asked me. I apologize for that. Canyon, how you decided oh, yeah, the yeah. Canyon was going to be the next you know, it, It's a center pole lift, you know, Stuart, it looks, it reeks of, oh, this is an older ski area. This is not right. a marquee ski area. This is not, I come here because it's local, but if I really want to go skiing someplace, I got to go to Tahoe or someplace else. Carl and I are passionate about mirroring as much of what the big resorts do as we possibly can, because our philosophy is that if we can offer a lot of what they offer, longer runs, bigger lifts, nicer lodges, not rebuilding them, but cleaning them up, nice new decks, furniture, very cold beer, really good food. And no traffic, no long lift lines, no expensive lift tickets, and, and all of that, that if we can offer the technology and the lifts and the look and the feel of a major ski area, but if, if you remember the Cali Pass marketing, there was a line I put in there that said, all of the good, none of the bad. And, and that's what we're trying to do. And, and so that lift was critical. And then right now what's happening, there's a T-bar, you know the map. The upper left side is called Fireball. That T-bar has been broken down for probably five or six years. It's a mess, okay? We just purchased yesterday a lift, a quad, a fixed quad to replace that lift in 2024. So we're super excited about that. Nice. Where did you, where did you purchase it from? Uh, one of my favorite skiers in the United States, Taos, New Mexico. Oh, Oh, may, oh, right, because they're putting in two new lifts this year. Okay, which yeah. one did you take from Taos? Um, I don't know the name of it. The nice thing about it, it's 4,600 feet long, 1,200 vertical feet, and we're putting it in place that is 400 vertical feet and 2,200 feet long. But Carl over at Dodge has a little double chair with a quad drive system, and he's going to take all the towers that I don't need, and he's gonna, we're going to get two fixed low-level fixed quads out of one lift out of tile. So super, super efficient way for us to do this. So that, that double, is that going to be an upgrade at Dodge with that same lift? Yes. Yeah. So we're going to take a T-bar that doesn't run and a double chair with a center pole and get two fixed quads. 
Do you know which lift that is at Dodge Ridge? I, I want to say it's number five. It's the one on the bottom. Carl just put in that triple chair to the right. It comes out to the base of the ski area to the left. Along Clementine? I think it's number five, but I'm not positive. Yep. Okay. Yeah, I just I just pulled up the trail map. That looks right. Okay, yeah. that's that's amazing. So I was going to ask you about Fireball. Are you still going to call it Fireball lift or have you not decided yeah. that yet? Nope. Same lift. Probably same lift line. My, my son, Troy, and I... We're going to go look at it on uh, Wednesday morning to see if we want to keep the same line. We probably do, but there are a few other options for the top terminal, but probably stay the same. It just adds a little bit of size to the eastern part of the resort. It's a great uh, place to put a terrain park. It's a 300-foot wide ski run, very gentle. It gets more snow. There's zero rocks. It'll open really early in the morning on natural snow in the season. So it's a, it's a great lift and is a very efficient way for us to replace it. All right, let's talk about lift one here. You mentioned a high speed six. I don't know if that's what you're projecting and what you hope to put in there. What is your long-term thinking around lift one, Tim? What do you hope to see there? Well, that would be it, uh, Stuart. I mean, we've been thinking about it forever. I mean, all I have to do is ride the chair and, and look at the train and think, oh my God, this is, you're talking hundreds of acres of every type of terrain imaginal off of one chairlift. I mean, it's just, we looked at every lift in the state of California, looked at, we pulled up everybody's map and said, where could you have a more significant lift at a ski area to add more value? And, and base to base was incredible, but that's a transportation lift. As far as a skiing, snowboarding lift, we could not find a lift anywhere in California because other skiers like Snow Summit's top to bottom, uh, Homewood's kind of top to bottom. Most skiers don't lay out that way. Most skiers have backsides. They have this side. They have that side. You know, like Kirkwood. Kirkwood, one lift could get you a third of the ski area. So, right. so Carl, I have to finally calm him down. Every time he goes there and he skis that lift, he's like, oh my God, this would be five minute lapping, probably 700 acres of a two and a half mile long beginner run and some of the steepest groom terrain in California. So it's amazing. It would be a fantastic lift. So that's, that, that would be the long-term goal, but we really need a couple more really good years and we need another ski area to help boost the uh, cash flow so we can pay cash for a lift like that. You did up until a couple of years ago have a somewhat parallel lift called Dynamite and you yanked that one out. That was called Buckhorn before that. Yeah. Why did you remove Dynamite and do you ever intend to replace that lift or would the long-term plan to be have lift one serve everything? Yeah, Stuart, that lift really wasn't, it was an overflow lift and okay. uh, we're pretty efficient about loading and all that. So that lift was just, first of all, it's very, very old. It was going to have to get replaced. It was hard to keep it up to code. So we just said, you know what, that, that lift is, is not really helping us. We need more horsepower. We need the new chair two, which we put in 2018. We need the new chair six. We got to replace the T-bar. If you had a detachable, a six pack, which would be the, the choice six pack on chair one, and you put the T-bar, you put the lift in out there, that is a really, really, really complete ski area. I mean, you have, you have probably five or six lifts that are about 3,000 feet long, no runouts, no side hills, all fall line, all several runs per lift pod. And then you have your one big detachable servicing almost 1,700 vertical feet and well over 500 acres of terrain. So, uh, you know, to say that in my career, more than that's going to happen, I'd say that's probably not true. But again, if we can get our hands on a few more resorts, you know, we, we have plans for those resorts as well to boost those. So trivia question here for you, for the lift nerds listening, lift three, you changed the name from Buckhorn to dynamite. This is before you removed it. And you changed the name of lift two from exhibition to Buckhorn. Is there a story there, Tim? Uh, not on chair three. Uh, that was before my time. 
okay. so I don't know anything about that. They uh, there's a run over there called Dynamite, which is probably why they did that. Buckhorn is the name of the Mid Mountain Lodge up there. That it's not really a lodge; it's a bar grill. Insanely, insanely, insanely successful and popular. And there's a story we call the Buckhorn Boys, who were a group of skiers in the 1960s, who uh, were freestylers doing flips, drinking a lot of beer, having a lot of fun, and they called themselves the Buckhorn Boys. And most of those guys still ski at China Peak today in their 70s, a couple guys in their 80s, but there were about six of them. I know five of them. Uh, I don't th- I'm not even sure if any of them are, have passed away. They might still be around. And they're there all the time. So they are the Buckhorn Boys. And that's where that's why it's called Buckhorn. And that's why the chair is called Buckhorn. So surveying the rest of the mountain here, Park and Peak, those lifts both date to the early 80s. What else is on your wish list, your upgrade wish list, if anything? Do you see any of these lifts coming out if you were to make that six-pack upgrade to Summit? No, I don't, Stuart, because they all are critical to how people ski the mountain. China Peak, I was talking to a guy the other day. In fact, our builder, we're building a nice home for our family up at uh, Donner Lake, one of my great spots, favorite spots in the world. In fact, we're going to go meet the contractor today. And he's a Tahoe guy, big, big skier, and he never heard of China Peak. I said, you wouldn't hear China Peak. You know, if you live in Central California, you only go to China Peak, other than when you take trips to Tahoe. If you live in Southern California, you go Big Bear, you go to Mountain High, you go to Mammoth. And if you live north of us, you're like Tahoe. So there's no reason you would meet it. And then people that have come there that have never been there are like, how could there be a 1600 to 1700 vertical foot mountain, fall line skiing, steeps, long runs, fall line runs, fantastic grooming and all the frills. And I've never heard of it. I said, because it's not in your market. China Peak would be probably the fifth or sixth best ski area in Lake Tahoe if it was up there, but you're not going to know about it. And so I don't see much beyond that, Stuart. And again, maybe somebody, you know, five, six, seven, eight years from today says, yeah, well, you know, he's out and I'm in and I'm going to do something different. But for my money, we have enough parking. We have enough lift capacity. We have enough facility capacity to do about 200,000 visits. And that's about a third more than we do now. So we can get China Peak up to 200,000 visits, which is, by the way, what Dodge Ridge this year just did. Incredible. If we get China Peak up to 200,000 visits, um, you're looking at an incredibly, incredibly successful, profitable ski area. And I think that between adding that big lift and having a partnership with more ski resorts on the Cali Pass, I think that that is definitely going to happen. And I would say, you know, if, if somebody said, how do you like to end your career? I'd say, I'd like to end it by seeing China Peak do 200,000 visits and seeing the Cali Pass do three, 450, five, 650. If the Cali Pass can get up to a million skier visits, that'd be fantastic. How about a lift up East Bowl, Tim? A little too steep, a little too steep. We thought about, we, we, in fact, one of the things we're going to look at, Stuart, on Wednesday with my son is going to look at, is there make any sense at all to move that top terminal of the T-bar up to the top of East Bowl over there? The problem is it becomes a singularly type lift. You know, if we can find a route off the backside, which unfortunately faces south, you know, which means it's going to be a snow problem. If we could get lower level skiers off the back of that, then that was something we would consider. But right now, chair five at China Peak, which is China Bowl lift, the only time that lift ever, ever has a lift line is if the quad next door is not open. We just don't get that level of skier. This is not, you know, the Palisades. I was talking to my student and great young good friend, my son's good friend, Travis Ganong the other day. And Travis was saying, you know, that the early mornings of Palisades now are insane because you can wait an hour to get on that lift. 
on a powder day. That's just never going to happen in China Peak. Just never going to happen. So to add more super advanced terrain, you know, that, that's hike to terrain. And I'm not sure everybody in the world wants you to put a lift to hike to terrain. I mean, I know, I know Telluride went through that big mess. I know Taos went through that whole situation. So I'm not sure everybody wants us to put a lift to everything, especially when you can get to China Bowl with Chair 5. So, Tim, I appreciate that you are focused on your current footprint, but I'm curious, looking at your Forest Service permit, is there more in your boundary? Could you expand eventually if everything went right? Stuart, it's really not very good when you go east and west. Okay. Um, we've hiked it a million times. There, uh, you'd have to change the permit, which I really, frankly, would not want to go to. But I wouldn't want to do that. <laughs> but you go, you go beyond the ridge. You go beyond West Ridge, which is the which is the westernmost trail on Chair Seven. You go beyond Firebolt and run called Stadium Run, uh, which is to the right of the T Bar. I've hiked that. I've hiked it a lot. My sons and I go out there and say, "Look, we're going to do a workout today. Let's go do that." So we go check the terrain. We run it. We've hiked it. We've mountain biked it. It's really, you know, Jan Gazinski said something to me years and years ago, which I've never forgotten. He was a very, very, you know, obviously he had his issues, but being intelligent wasn't wasn't one of his problems. And when he talked about Kirkwood expanding into what's now known as Martin Point, and it's on the master plan, it's just never been built. Maybe it never will, but it hasn't. And I was talking to him one time years and years ago about Martin Point, and he says, Martin Point's good. They built the best stuff first at Kirkwood. So Chair 10 at Kirkwood, Chair 6 at Kirkwood is the best terrain at Kirkwood. And anything beyond that will be fun and adding more terrain, but it will not be the same as Chair 6 and the Chair 10. And that's the same thing we're trying to peak. Maybe, you know, we, th- we thought about maybe a lift to the east of the T-bar, maybe a lift to the west, maybe East Bowl. But the fact of the matter is, you know, you can put 5,000 people, probably 5,500 people at China Peak, and it will gobble them up. And no one will stand in line. And no one will have a problem getting facilities. No one will have a problem parking. 5,500 people, if you do the math on how you get to 200,000 visits, you pretty much have to have your Saturday at 5,500. And that resort can really comfortably, there's one, two, three, four places on the mountain to get something to eat, plus the hotel, plus the nighttime. And the beauty of China Peak, the beauty of Dodge Ridge, and the beauty of Mountain High is that we're all single site highways. The only people on those highways in the winter are coming to our ski areas as opposed to 50, even 88 at Kirkwood and Highway 80 and 267 and 395 and all these highways in California, the ski resorts are sharing those highways with everybody else, the gamblers, the truck drivers, the snow players, everything else. Our ski areas are dead end roads. And our fourth resort, look, I'm, I'm sort of beating on the bush. You know, we're trying to, we're trying to get, trying to make something happen with Bear Valley and Bear Valley is on Highway 4 and there's nothing at Highway 4. In fact, it closes after Bear Valley. You can't get there from my home to Bear Valley in the summer is an hour and 10 minutes to Bear Valley in the winter. It's three hours. And so you can't get past Bear Valley. So, so 108 to Dodge Ridge, 168 to China Peak, Highway 4 to Bear Valley and Highway uh, 2 to Mountain High. No one goes on those roads unless they're going to those ski areas. So they just don't get the traffic. It's almost impossible to have any meaningful traffic. Let me throw something out at you here, Tim, with the numbers you just throughout there. I mean, 5,500 people and, and the mountains gobbling them up. Do you think that chair one could be an eight pack or, or do you think six is the max you want to go? I, I don't think you get a whole lot more out of eight than six. Yeah, frankly, mm-hmm. we're not looking at super high end skiers here. Most of them are intermediate skiers. You're never going to have a capacity problem, Stuart, ever, 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 ever. So now you're talking about, well, if you're never going to have a lift line, then you're just going to make loading more difficult and you're going to make unloading more difficult. 
So what's, you know, I totally get why people buy eight packs because they want the capacity. We're just, shit, we don't even have a line on a triple chair. There's no way you can stand in line 10 minutes. It's not possible. Most of the time it's two or three minutes on a fixed triple chair, a six pack quad. We'd have to close the entire mountain to get a lift line there. I mean, that's what, that's what it would take. All right, Tim. Last thing I want to ask you about today, when you purchased the resort back in 2010, it was called Sierra Summit. You changed the name to China Peak. Why did you change the name? What's the story there? Well, China Peak's the original name. And uh, 1958, it was born China Peak based on the landmark rock outcropping on top, which is called China Peak and the Chinaman's Cabin. In 1982, it was purchased by Snow Summit. I was a young 26-year-old marketing guy. And uh, I thought that it would be really clever to change the name because of Snow Summit and our popularity in LA, and it was in the Sierra. So I said to Dick Kuhn, my, my mentor and best friend for 37 years, we should call it Sierra Summit. It's in the Sierra Summit. That's how we're going to grow the market. Well, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I didn't get what I get now and didn't realize that you're never going to get anybody from LA of any volume because you don't have any housing. So without housing, you can't get more people. And plus, I think there was a certain arrogance, in fact, I know there was, about that decision. And I think people in Fresno, the hardcore Central California, Central Coast, Central Valley skiers were like, yeah, what's the point here? And like, well, it's, that's their LA ski area. Well, we don't want an LA ski area. So even though Sierra Summit did okay, and I know if, you're, if you were under 28 years old, you never even heard of China Peak. I think that there was a, a fondness for Joe and Joanne Wyrick, who owned China Peak before they sold it to Snow Summit, basically, it's a little sidebar to that, not important. And so when I got in there, I started asking around. I say, listen, you know, I, I'm kind of thinking about something. And I talked to some of the longtime people that have been there. I said, you know, it's going to be new ownership. We're much more aggressive operators. We're much more into the full mountain facilities. We're into grooming. We're into all this stuff. We come from, you know, high-end skiing, ski racing backgrounds. My family's all, that's what we did. So it's going to be way more of a skier's mountain and everything that goes with that, more fun, more et cetera. I said, I think I'm bringing the name back. And I couldn't find anybody who would say think any other than that is a brilliant marketing move. Nice. Love that. Love coming full circle there. All right, Tim, I've taken enough of your time. With that, I will let you go. Really exciting things happening for the company. Thank you so much for sharing that story with us today. I wish you the best. And hopefully I can get out there and make some turns with you next winter. Stuart, we'd love to see you. And as always, as I said, I'm, a, I'm just an unbelievable fan of what you're doing and all the incredibly interesting people you talk to. And uh, I, I look forward to talking to you again. And love to see Carl and I would love to host you out here at one of our mountains. Yeah, you're welcome on the podcast anytime, Tim. Thank you. That's Tim Cohey, President and General Manager of China Peak, California. Tim, always a pleasure. What a freaking ride and what a story. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. And thank you all for listening. Three more pods already in the can. Dartmouth Skiway, New Hampshire, Timberline, West Virginia, and Bali, Nevado, Chile. Coming soon will be Trollhagen, Wisconsin, Platykill, New York, Mount Snow, Vermont, and Great Divide, Montana. And I am booking more all the time. Just this past week, I added the leaders of North Star, California, Lutzen, Minnesota, Mount Bachelor, Oregon, and Mount St. Louis Moonstone, Ontario, to my fall and winter lineup. And there are too many more books to list here, but I will tell you this, the very best way to get all new Storm Skiing Podcast episodes the moment they're live is to subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. 
new pods appear in your email box several hours before syncing with the podcast services, including Apple and Spotify. There are free and paid tiers of the newsletter and paid subscribers receive podcasts three days before everyone else. You can also follow the Storm on Twitter and Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.